Hi, everyone. Drew Perot here from the Broken Brain Podcast. Two quick things before we jump into today's interview with Dr. Isabella Wentz. Number one, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, for sharing it with your friends. It truly means the world. Okay, number two. If you haven't seen it already, I've launched an all-new eight-part documentary series called Broken Brain 2 with my dear friend and business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman, and we're giving the entire thing away for free, all eight episodes, starting on April 3rd. And anyone can sign up for free, again, at brokenbrain.com. If you want to take your brain health to the next level or learn more about the root causes behind today's biggest brain disorders, this docuseries is for you. Check it out at brokenbrain.com. So a little bit about today's episode with my dear friend and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Isabella Wentz. Today, we're talking all about a condition called Hashimoto's, which sounds like a super rare disease, but it's actually something that over 35 million Americans are diagnosed with, and it's the fastest growing autoimmune condition in North America. Hashimoto's autoimmune disease affects the thyroid gland and causes the body to attack its own cells, which can lead to all sorts of symptoms, including persistent pain, hair loss, chronic cough, and even brain fog and forgetfulness. In fact, what Dr. Isabella Wentz goes into in today's episode is how many women who are diagnosed with a brain disorder or anxiety could actually have thyroid issues at their root cause, including Hashimoto's. If you or someone you love is suffering from an autoimmune condition, I think you're going to enjoy this episode and walk away with a much better understanding of the root factors that all autoimmune conditions have in common and how they can affect your brain health. So now, on to my formal intro for Dr. Isabella Wentz. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perroid, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine, Dr. Isabella Wentz. Dr. Isabella Wentz is an internationally acclaimed thyroid specialist and licensed pharmacist who has dedicated her career to addressing the root causes of autoimmune thyroid disease after being diagnosed with Hashimoto's in 2009. Dr. Wentz is the author of the New York Times bestselling patient guide, Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause, and the recently protocol-based book, Hashimoto's Protocol, and the soon-to-be-released uh, incredible cookbook that I just got a chance to look through, Hashimoto's Food Pharmacology, Nutrition Protocols and Healing Recipes to Take Charge of Your Thyroid Health. As a patient advocate, researcher, clinician, and educator, Dr. Wentz is committed to raising awareness on how to overcome autoimmune thyroid disease through the Thyroid Secret documentary series, the Hashimoto's Institute practitioner training and her international consulting and speaking services offered to both patients and healthcare professionals. Dr. Isabella Wentz, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. I've followed your work as you've continued to share this incredible knowledge about Hashimoto's and really put it on the radar. You know, what a lot of people don't know is that Hashimoto's isn't some rare condition. It's actually the fastest growing autoimmune disease that's out there. I think I read the stats that your team provided to us, and there's over 35 million Americans who are diagnosed 
with this. I want to start off with the basics because there's still a lot of confusion. What is Hashimoto's and what are some of the common symptoms associated with it? So Hashimoto's, and you're right, it sounds like a rare and exotic condition, right? I know um, when I was first diagnosed, my husband, Michael, who you know, thought that it sounded like a Japanese sword fighter and somebody else said Quasimodo's, what, what's going on? And, and it, it's actually very, very common. It's an autoimmune condition that happens to affect the thyroid gland. And so what happens is the immune system starts to recognize the thyroid gland as a foreign invader, starts to attack and destroy the thyroid gland. And this eventually leads to the thyroid gland no longer being able to make adequate thyroid hormones. Um, and this leads to what's commonly known as hypothyroidism or a sluggish thyroid. And really what, what's, what's quite interesting is that hypothyroidism is, it's known to be very common, but it's, it's not known that Hashimoto's accounts for anywhere from 90 to 97% of cases of hypothyroidism. Um, the medication Synthroid has been a top-selling drug for the last five years, usually in the top one, two, or, th or third drug in all of the United States. And most people who take this drug actually have Hashimoto's, but they just don't know it because they haven't had the right tests, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, and the, the kind of crazy thing is a lot of times people don't get the proper diagnosis of Hashimoto's of thyroid disease until their thyroid gland has been significantly damaged and they're in the later stages of the condition. They might have symptoms for 10 years before they're diagnosed. I, I think I actually saw a recent study that was suggesting that the average time to diagnosis from the onset of the condition is, is about 10 years. And this was the case for me too. I started having symptoms at least 10 years before my diagnosis. Yeah, now, I believe I read in your story, you were an undergraduate and you had these collection of symptoms that weren't matching up. I would love for you to talk to us about that and how that eventually led to the diagnosis of, of Hashimoto's. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I actually think I probably started having symptoms as a child when I was exposed to Chernobyl, which, which toxins can be a trigger for thyroid conditions. Um, around age three, I was starting, I started to have anxiety attacks. These eventually went away. Um, then around puberty, I had an enlarged thyroid, which eventually ran away. My mom happened to be a pediatrician. And so she would take me in to get tested, but the tests that were being done, unfortunately, didn't test for Hashimoto's. They only tested for late stages of thyroid disease. In college, after, um, of uh, having the Epstein-Barr virus infection or the mono infection, I really started to go downhill. And this is known as a trigger for, for thyroid disease as well. I started to have a lot of fatigue. I went from being this bright-eyed and bushy-tailed college student who was in honors and, and you know, kind of like your typical type A overachiever to sleeping through my exams because I was so tired. And then coming home after class to study, to take a quick nap, waking up the following morning and being late for class. Um, and this was just, just, you know, bizarre to me. I didn't know what was going on. Um, went to the clinic and they really couldn't give me any answers. And uh, later on that summer, I, I started to have this weird kind of like depression where I had a hard time making decisions. I felt sort of numb to the world. My, my, again, my parents were like, uh, my mom's a pediatrician. So she was like, what is going on? 
here and she took me to a psychologist and, and they sort of were like, oh, well, college is hard, right? And, but you know, that, that really wasn't what was going on. I kind of leveled out and I just started to make adjustments for being very, very tired all the time and figured out how to study and really cut back on a lot of social events. And then I went through, um, got into pharmacy school after somehow, you know, getting my GPA to be good enough. And then I started having irritable bowel syndrome and then panic attacks and acid reflux, carpal tunnel in both arms, hair loss. Um, it, it just was really bizarre. I was like, it was like my body was like slowly breaking itself down and I had these little annoying things. And, you know, when you're in, in school, you're like, oh, wow, this is like the worst thing I have. I, I'm fatigued. So that means I have cancer. And of course, I go to the clinic and get tested every year for all these things. And they were like, no, you're fine. You're probably just stressed out because you're in grad school. Whereas when we look at what the symptoms people describe for the for the five, 10 years before they have thyroid disease, they're going to be symptoms of fatigue, being more tired than you were. They're going to be anxious. A lot of times people will report that they're going to be depressed. I've seen some people who unfortunately were misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder uh, with psychotic disorder, when uh, we have this attack on the thyroid gland, all this thyroid hormone gets rushed into our system, and that can cause those fluctuations in mood and energy levels. Which um, is, sorry to jump in, but it's such an important point, especially when it comes to our brain health, because this can look like a brain disorder, and then you might be steered in one direction, but actually it could be something with your thyroid if you're somebody that has Hashimoto's. Exactly. And I've had so many clients, Drew, that will say they were on antipsychotic medications and they were they were told they had borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, psychotic disorder, NOS, anxiety, panic attacks, depression, all these mental health diagnoses. And you know what? They get on the right type of thyroid support. And then we do things to help support their immune system and reduce their thyroid antibodies, reduce some of that inflammation in the body. And guess what? They no longer have a psych, psych, psychiatric diagnosis and they no longer require psychiatric meds. It, it's wow. just amazing. Um, but it happens to affect more than, than, than the brain as well. There's full body system symptoms. And a lot of times people miss it because the symptoms can be nonspecific. So another big complaint that people have is that they tend to gain weight or they have an inability to lose weight. So you could be going to the gym exactly the same as you were and eating the same diet that you have been. And all of a sudden, you know, you're just putting on extra, extra weight. Your sweatpants start to get tight. You're like, what's going on? And a lot of times we can talk ourselves out of, you know, noticing that this is off. We could say like, oh, well, I'm just getting older or I'm stressed out or I, you know, I'm not going to the gym as often. I'm not working out as hard and blah, blah, blah. All these things we tell ourselves. And, um, you know, for me, this was the case too. And I was told that I was just getting older. And of course I was 25 at the time, which is ridiculous. Um, but, uh, that is a really, really big red flag for me is if somebody is having trouble with their weight, it's a very big red flag for, for a thyroid condition. And so at what point in time, you know, you were taken, well, actually talk to us about as you were having these symptoms and your mother being a physician, I'm sure you started to go see doctors. What type of diagnoses were they giving you and what direction were they heading you in? And then how did you ultimately come to discover that you were diagnosed with Hashimoto's? 
wow, we've got, how much do we have time do we have, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'll try to make it short, but I, so initially I would go to the, the college clinic and it was like, oh, well, you have Epstein-Barr virus. So that's probably why you're tired. That's going to take some time to get out of your system. Then in pharmacy school, it was, well, you have irritable bowel syndrome. So you can try to take um, this medication that basically made me blind because it, it um, you know, it kind of dries up your entire system, right? And then, then it was, oh, well, you know, you're kind of anxious and you're having these panic attacks and you're kind of, you're having trouble focusing. So maybe let's, let's have you go to a psychiatrist. And I actually got um, prescribed medications for narcolepsy, which I didn't take, but they were like, you're tired and you're anxious and you're having trouble concentrating. Let's give you some provigil. And I was just like, no, like, I, I don't think this makes sense. And, you know, had somebody tested my little thyroid with some advanced tests, they would have been like, here's some thyroid hormone. And maybe that would have, you know, helped. Um, then it was like, acid reflux. So I went to a gastroenterologist and I did one of those like barium swallows and they, I had a hiatal hernia um, and I had proton pump inhibitors. Then it was hair loss. So I went to a dermatologist and she gave me, um, why don't she give me some, some allergy medications and some topical stuff. And then it was an allergist because I had all these allergies. And so she gave me a ton of allergy medications. And then it was uh, you know, the left hand doctor and the right hand doctor that, you know, I had carpal tunnel. So I went to like a, a GP for that. And he gave me meds for that. And oh my goodness, it was like, it was hard work trying to try to figure out what was going on with me. And it was hard work to even keep up with all the meds I had to take a day. And, I, and I'm a pharmacist, right? Um, and then finally, I, at the time I was working as a consulting pharmacist for people with rare conditions. And a lot of my clients didn't have like the standard of care things that helped them because they were like maybe one out of 60 people that had this condition in the entire world. So I was used to being um, at the forefront of like the latest research and patient forums and the associations for rare disease trying to figure out how to help our clients best. And then I'm like, well, um, maybe if my clients are getting their runaround from their doctors and our team is in place to help them figure stuff out that actually works, maybe I can try to use that same approach for myself, right? Um, and so I started digging into some of the research and I, I really advocated for additional testing. And that's when I was found to have Hashimoto's. So my thyroid antibodies were in a 2000 range where, you know, some tests will say above nine is elevated. Others will say above 35. Wow. And my TSH was around 4.5 when I was told that my thyroid was normal. And then by the time I got around to doing the antibody tests and getting it all together, it was at an eight. So I had already advanced thyroid disease. Like when I look at my past tests, and this is why I always encourage patients to do that, I had thyroid condition uh, markers that were elevated and found on these tests but the doctors didn't know how to interpret the test correctly. So I was walking around like trying to figure out what was going on with me and suffering needlessly for, you know, probably I would say at least a decade. And doctors are trying to do the best they can. But the, the crazy thing is, is that, you know, I think it was, um, I mean, when it was in the fifties that Hashimoto's was first understood to be an autoimmune condition and organ specific. 
And it's been in the medical literature for a long time of how to approach it, at least, uh, you know, since probably like the 70s and, and 80s. But, you know, what do you think was the reason that it was it was overlooked, even though it's been understood in the medical literature for for quite some time? But it's interesting you say that there was like recently a hundred year anniversary of, you know, Hashimoto's being discovered. Um, but the thing is that most doctors will not test for Hashimoto's antibodies, which are elevated for maybe five, 10, 15 years before we see a change in actual thyroid hormones in the system. Um, they won't test for those first because they don't really know what to do about them. And they open up a can of worms, right? Because patients are like, why do I have these antibodies? Why, what should I do about them? How do I get my body to start attacking itself? Where conventional medicine, there's only one tool for a thyroid condition, and that's thyroid hormone. And thyroid hormone is not indicated until um, a certain percentage of the thyroid gland has been destroyed so that the thyroid can no longer make enough thyroid hormones. It's now, almost like um, your doctor's waiting for you to get sicker so that they can finally give you a disease and then decide to treat it. <laughs> well, yeah, there was, I know a few of my uh, clients and readers and, you know, colleagues and friends, we, we just, we kind of get together, we chat about this stuff all the time. And people are saying, my doctor said, I have Hashimoto's, but my thyroid function, my thyroid is still kind of kicking along. And they said just to keep coming back until my thyroid gland burns itself out and then they'll give me hormone. And these poor people, they're having panic attacks. They're having, you know, depression. They're wearing six coats to stay warm in Southern California. Maybe it's a slight exaggeration, but, you know, they're having a lot of thyroid symptoms um, because when the thyroid gland is under attack, it's not going to be functioning properly. And and you're going to be feeling like terrible unless you get some thyroid hormone in your system and unless you reduce that inflammation. So you had mentioned in the beginning part of the interview, some insults and, and, and toxins and other things, by the way, I just have to ask this. You said Chernobyl. Uh, how did it come to be that you had possibly radiation exposure? Oh, well, I grew up in Poland, which is next to the Ukraine, right? Um, and I grew up actually pretty close to the Ukrainian border. And so we were downwind from the from the disaster. And um, interestingly, the the closer you were to Chernobyl, the more likely you were to have a thyroid diagnosis at some point, whether that was Hashimoto's or thyroid cancer. There was this um, you know, insane study that I like to cite where kids who were at a certain age at the time of exposure, about 80% of them went on to have thyroid antibodies compared to genetically similar kids in a different part of, you know, Russia, Ukraine, um, where those, those rates were closer to, you know, the average rates, which which are, you know, anywhere from, from 10 to 25% in the general population. So coming back to your story, you're finally starting to get some understanding and maybe get some additional testing done. Who is the doctor that maybe completed the story for you, at least to help you understand that, okay, we have Hashimoto's that we're dealing with, and then what did you decide to do after that? One of the doctors was an allergist, so she tested me for these high antibodies, and she said, you know, sometimes they're high and it's not a big deal, right? And then, so it was like one little antler was up, but not fully. 
And then the other doctor was my primary care who at that point said, and you have these, um, I sent him the labs from uh, the allergist and he said, and oh, well, your TSH is really is is getting high. Um, and this goes along with your history of Hashimoto's. And I was like, wait, what? I thought this was like not a big deal. What's going on here, right? I, you know, I was too busy to really research it for myself. And then I, I was, I put one and two together. I was like, oh, well, this, this is a thing that I need to focus on. And he said, yeah, you're pretty close to probably needing thyroid hormone soon. And at that point I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And a part of me was relieved because I'm like, great. I'm a pharmacist. I could take thyroid medications. Things are going to be great. Um, and a part of me was like, wait, why is my immune system attacking itself? And I'm young and I do healthy things. So what can I do to make this better? And how do I, how do I get myself to be the healthiest person with this condition? What caused it? And what, um, you know, are there lifestyle changes I could take to reverse, slow down the condition? And I started on the medication and that helped, but not that much. So I went from sleeping like 11 to 12 hours to 10 hours, which was great to have that one extra hour. But, you know, I wasn't still fully human. I only had to wear one coat in Southern California. Um, but I still had a lot of these palpitations, anxiety attacks, carpal tunnel, irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux. And and really, I just started digging for myself, uh, looking through the the latest research and dabbling in this crazy thing called like integrative functional medicine, which was complete voodoo to me as a, you know, conventionally trained pharmacist. Um, and really started to really research a lot and then had some paralysis by analysis until I finally started to, to take charge of my own health in 2011. And, um, you know, reading some of Dr. Hyman's work was definitely a part of my healing journey as well. That's incredible. Now I know there's a whole host of things that you, uh, did, which we're going to get a chance to, um, talk about, but, um, from from there at what point in time did you feel that the things that you were doing which we're going to unpack in a second how long did it take you to start to notice a significant shift if you got serious in 2011 when you started implementing the things that you teach about how long did it take for you to to start really really noticing a significant shift in your symptoms um so i tried a bunch of stuff before and that just didn't really work as well. But I was kind of like half into it. So I would be like, oh, coconut oil, let's try that and whatnot. And then um, within three days, when I did the right interventions, within three days, acid reflux that I had had for uh, three years, I believe at that point, vanished. I was able to wean off of like the Pepsi, the PPI and, you know, the, all the Tums and all, and all these, like I had like a stack of like acid suppressing things and I was able to get off of them within three days. My bloating and irritable bowel syndrome gone in three days. And I had that, mind you, since um pharmacy school. So that was probably at least, I want to say maybe eight years at that point, nine years, where um that vanished within three days. The carpal tunnel, I had that in both arms for about a little bit over a year. And it was so bad that I couldn't type up reports at work. I actually had to get one of those talk to computer softwares um, because my arms were so painful and I wear two braces like pretty much 24 seven. And that actually took a few more weeks to resolve. And I, I did some chiropractic 
modifications for that, but that was completely gone. And I was like, wow, I think I'm onto something. Like, I didn't want to believe in this food as medicine woo-woo stuff, right? But it's working. Um, and this is why I decided to, to have the food pharmacology book because really food can be such a powerful ally. And, and you know what? I didn't need to see an expensive, fancy doctor to change my diet. It all came from, from me, right? So let's talk about that. You know, you talk about, and Dr. Hyman talks about food as medicine. Why is it that food plays such a big role with Hashimoto's? For those that are listening and are trying to understand that how you have this thyroid condition, how is it that food actually played a role? What did you have to take out and what did you have to add in? And how did that help uh, basically put you at such few symptoms that you are technically, even though medical literature says there's no cure for Hashimoto's, you're in pretty much complete remission. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite amazing because I, um, I, you know, when I was going through pharmacy school, I just didn't realize what an important role food played for our bodies. I would, and, and then after pharmacy school, people were talking about you know, this food, that blah, blah, blah. And I was, I was like, no, if food really made a difference, if the gluten-free diet made a difference that I would have surely learned about it in school, right? This is only for people with celiac disease, not for people with other conditions. And, and, um, one of the things that I came across, one of the pieces of literature was that in people who had both Hashimoto's and celiac disease, when they removed gluten, a percentage of them went into remission. So their thyroid gland was no longer attacking itself. And if it was caught in the early enough stages, their thyroid function normalized and they didn't even need to take thyroid meds. And that was with removing one food, which was gluten. And I thought to myself, okay, if there's one food that's inflammatory to some people with both celiac and Hashimoto's and they're both autoimmune, maybe that could help people with just Hashimoto's or maybe there's other types of conditions out there and that are like celiac disease with other types of foods that that can um, that can be inflammatory or triggering. And for me, actually, one of the biggest triggering foods was dairy. And casein dairy protein is what was contributing to a lot of my symptoms and a lot of my antibodies. Now, the two most common foods for most people with Hashimoto's that I've worked with, and I've done some outcomes research on this, 88% of people feel better on a gluten-free diet and 80% of people feel better on a dairy-free diet. Um, and one of the, the reasons, and it's not fully understood, but one of the reasons, in my opinion, is um, due to something known as a delayed hypersensitivity reaction. So um, there's different types of reactions our immune system can initiate. The most common one is known as an aller allergy or allergic reaction. This is the IgE branch of the immune system. So if you've ever seen anybody that eats peanuts and they swell up, they get hives, they get anaphylaxis. That's that, right? Um, a lot of times we call it in the medical world a true allergy where um, that kind of almost like disempowers any other kind of sensitivities and reactions. And the IgG delayed sensitivity reaction, what's different about it is that it may take hours to days to manifest. It's governed by the IgG branch of the immune system and the symptoms are going to be nonspecific and they're going to be more like, hey, I have joint pain or hey, I have inflammation um, in a certain part of my body. 
Now, what's interesting is that we make these delayed hypersensitivity reactions to foods and to our thyroid glands. So actually, Hashimoto's is known as a type 4 delayed hypersensitivity reaction. And for whatever reason, whenever we eat foods that stimulate this IgG system, that also stimulates or increases the attack on the thyroid gland. There's some thoughts out there that certain proteins look like the thyroid. So for example, the gluten has a molecule has some proteins on it that looks similar to the thyroid gland. So whenever we eat gluten and our immune system uh, reacts to it, it's also going to attack anything that looks like gluten, which may be in a part of our body. For, for some people that are genetically susceptible, it may be the thyroid gland. Um, so that that's kind of one of the ways that that food plays a big role. It's through these delayed hypersensitivity reactions, these reactive foods that cause inflammation in our body and that inflammation gets translated into attack on the thyroid gland. Another thing is going to be through balancing blood sugar. A lot of times in our Western diet, we're eating a very carb-heavy diet. And researchers have found that low-carb diets are actually less likely to cause an immune system flare-up in thyroid disease, and they're, they're associated with better outcomes and lower thyroid antibodies as well as lower thyroid symptoms. And then we have nutrient deficiencies. A lot of times people with Hashimoto's end up becoming deficient in selenium, in thiamine, um, in carnitine. Selenium has been particularly connected to thyroid antibodies. We see that using that as a supplement can reduce thyroid antibodies by about half within three months. And then carnitine and thiamine have been amazing for eliminating thyroid fatigue, sometimes in as little as three days. Um, and a lot of times, you know, the diet, the foods that we're eating are going to be processed. So they're going to be lacking in those nutrients. Um, we may be eating foods that are incorrect for our, our body. So we may be eating perhaps a vegan diet where, in fact, we actually need more carnitine, which is found in red meat. Uh, we may be potentially deficient in digestive enzymes because of prolonged dieting or some other infections, and then we don't extract nutrients correctly from our food, or these foods are undigested and they end up becoming uh, foods that we react to. And, and this is why I don't just talk about which foods to remove and which foods to add, but I also talk about using supportive nutrients as well as digestive enzymes in food pharmacology because I really want people to understand how to take care of their own nutritional needs. I feel like this should be like a basic human understanding that should be taught like in the first grade, right? For everybody. Right. Because you can have maybe a hundred or a thousand patients that all have Hashimoto's. And even though we know that food plays a role, they all might need slightly different personalization to what's happening for, for, for them. Not everybody is meant to have the same exact diet, but with that being said, there are trends and there are things that are out there, uh, that are worth paying attention to. I want to go back to something very important that you said and just really highlight it because I think our, our uh, it's, it's so obvious to you and I in this industry, but this is new for a lot of people. When you go and get an allergy test or if somebody said, um, you know, go see if you're allergic to these foods, you're basically making the distinction saying that a true allergy response is a completely different mechanism than a, than a sensitivity those are two separate things. So most people who say, well, I don't have celiac, so I'm fine. You're talking about something else, which uh, Alessio Fasano, who's one of the 
practitioners and researchers that are out there that really help put celiac on the map and make the link between intestinal permeability. He says, we actually can have something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So for those foods, and to piggyback off the last thing you said, how does somebody actually go about figuring out if they have a sensitivity or a trigger to those foods if traditional allergy testing won't pick it up? That, you know, that's such an important question. And I remember passively telling somebody about my story and this um, wonderful colleague of mine in ended up um, going to an allergist because he overheard my story and it, he ended up getting like the itchy back test. And he was found not to have any quote unquote allergies because he was having a lot of the same symptoms like acid reflux, IBS. And, you know, that wasn't the route that he needed to go. The the food reactions, food sensitivities, there are specific food sensitivity tests. Now, there are a ton of them out there that are different and use different methodologies and use different types of immune responses. And some of them might use raw foods and some of them might use cooked foods and, you know, different, different amounts of foods. So they're not really standardized and they're actually considered experimental. Um, so oftentimes patients can get them, but they'll have to get them out of pocket. Um, and and the the different tests, you know, they're not always going to be as accurate. Some of them might have a lot of false positives. Some of them might have a lot of false negatives. The one test I found to be pretty accurate in the last um, seven years or so has been the Alle test, A L L E T E S S, food sensitivity test, and that's that's been pretty uh, spot on with with myself and my clients. Whenever we have a food that tests positive, when we remove that food, we feel better. Um, but that is, you know, that's kind of one way to go. And, and if you're somebody that needs to see that things on paper and black and white, maybe doing a test like that for you is, is going to be what you need to do before you take action. But the gold standard of figuring out your food sensitivities is actually doing something known as an elimination diet. This doesn't cost any money. You don't need to go through a doctor to get it, right? Um, you don't need to give any blood. And what you do is you eliminate the most common reactive foods for a time period. I, I generally will say three weeks, give it three weeks minimum, sometimes four weeks. And then you monitor your symptoms, you, you have a journal. And as you begin to, um, to see if any of your symptoms go away with this type of diet, that's gonna be a great sign that you were sensitive to something that you're eating. The next phase of this, the next step is adding those foods back in. And you're going to add one food every four days. Now, now I have a 10-month-old, and this is very much like what I'm doing right now with him or what I was doing earlier, where I add one food every four days to see if he's sensitive to it, right? How is this working for him? Because the sensitivities may not show up right away. And that's what we do. We really take it back. We take one food at a time, and then we have a journal, and we look for, am I having a rash? Did I have diarrhea? Did I have um, anxiety as a result of this? Did my palpitations get worse? Did my joint pain get worse? And you give it about four days to observe that because sometimes what you eat on Monday may not show up in your system until Wednesday or Thursday. You know, this could be a migraine, this could be panic attack, or this could be a rash or, or, you know, joint pain. Which goes back to this delay that you were talking about earlier. It's not always instantaneous that we know that a food is impacting us. We have to sort of track our sleep see how we feel first thing in the morning. Do we wake up with anxiety? Do we toss and turn at night? So in this process, you're sort of having everybody write down 
their experiences so they can actually notice the trends. Exactly. And I really, really like this approach. So I, you know, you can do the food sensitivity testing, you could do both um, or one or the other, but I really love this approach because it allows you to connect intuitively with your own body, right? And a lot of times, you know, we'll see kids and babies will do that on their own. They'll, the food doesn't work for them and they reject it. Um, and as a kid, you may, you may be like, oh, wait, whenever my, you know, my mom tried to give me milk, I hated it. But then I started drinking milk later because I thought it was good for me. And it ended up that you were milk sensitive all along, right? Incredible. So, uh, and this is actually in your book, I believe, uh, the food, uh, Hashimoto's protocol. You talk about the 90 day plan and you walk people through how they can do these experiments. And the other thing that I'd add to that is that if somebody does need to go see a functional medicine doctor or integrative doctor or naturopathic doctor, this is often one of the first things they're going to have you do. So some people who have other co-infections or other issues, maybe in addition to Hashimoto's, or maybe it doesn't get better on just diet alone. If you do decide to work with a practitioner, the first thing they're going to have you do is follow this uh, protocol that you're mentioning. So why not just try it and see how you respond? Exactly. So you, you'll be able to connect with your body. And it's, it's amazing what our bodies can tell us if we actually tune in and listen. Um, for me, I know when I introduced dairy back into my, into my body, it was like, I am not liking this. So I would have acid reflux and I would have, you know, the irritable bowel syndrome and my joint, my carpal tunnel actually started coming back. And it was like a very clear message. Um, the, the key thing is though, you have to eliminate it for a time period to give your body a break from it and to kind of make that connection happen. Because if you're eating the foods on a chronic basis, your body's just kind of like, you know, kind of like pissed off about everything. So you're going to be setting off all these immune responses that may not be, you know, you're not going to be able to connect it necessarily, if that makes sense. Like I know for me, I was eating um, a whey protein smoothie with yogurt and then a cheese sandwich um, for lunch and then something with, with dairy at dinner. And it wasn't like I, I would be able to immediately make that connection until I eliminated those foods. And then my body got really good at telling me and, and actually quicker um, when something wasn't working for me. And in addition to that, there are sometimes other things you point out to people that are related to Hashimoto's that um, we've heard of, but we may not always understand. So I'd love to pick uh, some of the personalization that you talk about in addition to doing this uh, elimination diet of removing gluten, dairy, soy, and a few other trigger foods. So let's talk about histamines. So what are histamines? Uh, what food caused histamines and how could that be potentially uh, part of the flare-up and symptoms that people experience when it comes to Hashimoto's? With, with Hashimoto's, there may be various different types of food categories or types of responses that you may have to different types of foods. And these aren't always going to be permanent and these aren't always going to be the same in every person. So depending on your ancestry, depending on where you live in the world, depending on your genetics, um, depending on your unique microbiome, depending on what infections you have, you might be re reacting to different types of foods. Now, I generally will tell people to start off on something like a gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free diet. And this is going to be very helpful for a large amount of people. Um, and then if that doesn't help, we move into a diet like the paleo diet. That's another template that I utilize where you eliminate addition types 
additional types of foods and you add in all these nutrient dense foods. Um, and then we're looking at um, for other people, they may need to be a little bit more restrictive and they may need to go to something like the autoimmune paleo diet, which is going to eliminate additional foods while still maintaining that we're eating a varied diet, that we're eating nutrient dense foods. Um, big part of what I recommend for a lot of people is going to be fermented foods. So like fermented foods like um, like coconut yogurt, sauerkraut, fermented vegetables, these are going to be excellent for most people in restoring their microbiome. Um, and they're going to be helpful overall with symptoms. I, you know, I, I think I ate like jars and jars of, of yogurt and, and sauerkraut. And that was part of my healing journey, but that's not going to be the case for everybody. There are some people who may have histamine reactions and one of the key kind of foods that are going to be flaring up those reactions are going to be fermented foods. So these are going to be the, the sauerkrauts and, and fermented veggies. And, and you may need to modify your dietary plans to remove those if you have these kind of reactions. Some of the, the things to, the, the way I like to think about it is, is histamine sets off like an allergic response. So if you have any kind of hives, if you have any kind of flushing, tissue swelling, um, that would be a sign that you may have histamine intolerance. If you have asthma, that flares up. Um, if you have any kind of nasal congestion, like sneezing, anything like that, I would think about. But also anxiety might be a part of that. Um, insomnia might be a part of that. You might also, you might get some migraines. You might have um, some irritable bowel syndrome. Um, this is going to be a potential sign that you should eliminate histamines. Um, and, and some of the categories, like I said, are going to be the fermented foods, wine, beverages, and beer could be setting this off. Anything that's going to be um, any kind of dried fruit may be a trigger. And um, overall, this is something that I don't see as a long-term thing for people we usually want to be on a low histamine diet for a time period while we work on healing the gut. So in my research, what I found is that people oftentimes have SIBO or they have a dysbiosis where they're not able to um, have a certain type of, they don't have a certain bacteria in their bodies or enough of a certain bacteria that can break down that histamine properly. Um, and there are, you know, there are different supplements and protocols that I write about actually on my blog um, for histamine. And that can be very, very helpful. So you don't have to be on this diet long-term. That's great. Uh, talk to us about iodized salt and autoimmune diseases. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, like I used to work in public health and people, public health officials and public health experts are always so well-meaning. We, we see this big problem in the large population, we're like, how do we help everybody, right? How do we help this whole population, we call it population health, to have better outcomes? And one of the public health concerns was that people were having hypothyroidism due to iodine deficiency. And public health officials said, why don't we put iodine in the salt? Everybody eats salt, right? And so they went on this initiative and started putting iodine in the salt supply. And lo and behold, we ended up with fewer cases of iodine deficiency hypothyroidism, which is generally easily treated with iodine, to more cases of Hashimoto's and Graves' disease. And it's sort of like, oh, oh, oh gosh, what did we do, right? 
And in some cases, we've seen rates of Hashimoto's doubling, tripling, sometimes quadrupling after iodine was introduced to the salt supply within like a 10-year period, right? It's crazy. Um, and so in some cases, we know that iodine excess can cause Hashimoto's. Um, it could be a trigger, can be an exacerbating factor. And what we found is that iodine, it seems to be a narrow therapeutic index nutrient. So we have to get the levels just right. It's like a Goldilocks nutrient. We don't want to have too much, otherwise it's toxic if we don't have enough. You know, we have issues too with deficiency. And so, um, you know, as a, as a pharmacologist, there's always this saying that, that whether it's a medicine or a toxin is all related to dose, right? That's going to determine if something is good for us or not. So if you're doing excess iodized salt, excess iodine in general, we're going to have problems. And what's what's kind of scary is looking at our current diet. I did an analysis of um, just the average American diet, and it was like four times the amount of iodine that a person with Hashimoto's has been documented to tolerate. Wow. So one of the first things I recommend is going to be removing iodine, um, iodized salt from your from your from your life. And it, it's highly processed. It's white, and it's um, you know it's not good for us. It's it's part of those white uh, you know empty things. And one one of the things you should do is is add sea salt to your diet, and that is going to be something like that's gray or pink. Himalayan sea salt can be very helpful. There have been cases of people who have been able to get Hashimoto's into remission by managing their iodine intake. Now, the flip side of that is you don't want to go too low. And for people with Hashimoto's, the dosage in, in like a multivitamin or a prenatal vitamin is going to be tolerated and actually have um, improved outcomes when we take that in. So anywhere from like 150 to 250 micrograms of iodine per day is going to be helpful with uh, reducing thyroid symptoms and reducing thyroid antibodies. But when we go any higher than that, we can actually exacerbate the condition. And, and what are your favorite sources? You know, if people aren't going to get it from salt. Um, and by the way, for those that are listening out there that are like, well, I don't have a lot of like iodine that I, I mean, I use sea salt at home. It's pretty trendy. You know, people are using pink Himalayan salt. But obviously, if you're eating out a lot, a lot of places, if they're not, you know, healthy restaurants are going to use just normal iodized cheap salt because that's what they they know. So you definitely have to be aware of that. But uh, what are your favorite sources of iodine that you recommend to people that they can get uh, in their diet? You know, honestly, I treat iodine like a drug. So as a pharmacist, I'm very careful with with it because let's say I think I, um, you know, sushi or not sushi, what am I saying? Seaweed is an excellent source of iodine, but unless you know exactly where the seaweed was cultivated, um, you're not going to know how much iodine is in it. It's really easy to overdose yourself. And so I, I recommend taking it by, via a supplement and it's okay if, you know, if you have that sushi with the seaweed every now and then, but I don't recommend trying to put kelp flakes or seaweed into your diet on a day-to-day -day basis. I've unfortunately had some clients who felt that that was a trigger for their Hashimoto's when they decided to go on a health kick and say like, I'm going to have seaweed every day or I'm going to have kelp with, with um, you know, every meal. So would you recommend just to so, complete that circle that the next time that people go in for their, their checkup and their blood work or if they're experiencing symptoms and obviously they go to a, a doctor, should they check their um, uh, iodine out? 
that one of the one of the challenges with iodine is that the tests are not super reliable. There's a urine test from ZRT Lab that I really like, but it's better for population health. So we're going to be seeing that a person, um, you know, if you were to take a, a people in, in a village that all ate the same diet and they all use this test, we'd be able to to tell if that village was overall deficient in iodine. But on a day-to-day basis, that's going to change. Now, I love seafood, and I don't think we should restrict it um, uh, for the purposes of iodine. Um, uh, Let me rephrase that. Um, Seafood is an excellent source of iodine, and eating that once or twice a week is going to be an excellent way to meet your needs. Um, And also taking an iodine supplement preventatively in like a multivitamin or a prenatal if you're of childbearing age. Uh, is is a great way to to assure that you have adequate amounts. So you talked about public health. There's another public health issue that came out of good intentions and could potentially be wreaking havoc on our body. Talk to us about uh, fluoride and what the connection is between fluoride in our water and how it could be impacting the thyroid. Yeah, this is another one of these um, issues, and um, it, it's kind of interesting. So fluoride was added to our water supply in the United States to help us with cavities, right? And so um, a lot of times we were having dental decay, and they found that low amounts of fluoride helped to prevent that. And the United States is one of the few countries that actually adds fluoride to our water supply. What's interesting is a lot of European countries have um, dis- have refused to do this or have stopped doing it. I know in the Netherlands, um, one of the public health officials stated that they didn't think drugs should be put in our water and that this should be something that um, people consented to, right? Because again, when we try to help everybody and we're all individuals, some of us are more genetically susceptible to having problems, then we end up potentially helping some people with um, with their teeth, but then we end up hurting other people's thyroids. Um, and the other kind of interesting thing is that a lot of the dental improvements in our dental health, people have been giving fluoride credit for, where um, researchers have found, or fluoride in the water supply specifically, that it's not necessarily the fluoride, but just that better dental hygiene in general. And um, Kind of a funny story. My cousin is a, a newly minted dentist in Poland. And a few years back when I was visiting, she's like, Isabella, is it true that in Poland or in the United States, they add fluoride to the water instead of just telling people to eat less sugar <laughs> and them how to clean their teeth properly? And I was, and she was just like, there's no way that's true. And I'm like, yeah, it's true. Um, and so fluoride is, is a, a halogen and it can be potentially toxic to the thyroid gland, can suppress thyroid function. Um, halogens in general have been found to do that. And uh, not a lot of studies on this with thyroid function, which is, which is kind, of, kind of crazy when you think about it, um, that we are utilizing something in our water supply without really studying its effects, like on the whole body, right? Um, but one recent study that was done in the UK, the UK parts of it fluoridize their water, parts of it don't, and different parts have different levels. And they actually found that the parts of the country 
that have fluoride in their water supply had higher rates of thyroid disease compared to the parts that don't. And what's interesting too is the more fluoride in the water, the more thyroid disease. So one of the things I recommend is getting a reverse osmosis filter for your water that you're going to be drinking and um, any water that you're going to be cooking with. It's That's going to be a, a game changer for a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, it's so essential. And I know that uh, we've we've done some stuff with AquaTrue. I know you recommend AquaTrue. It's a great uh, countertop base filter that's pretty, pretty affordable. But I think this is just an a whole host of reasons why people should be filtering their water. And obviously fluoride is a, is a big one. I want to talk about um, medication um, and Hashimoto's. So sometimes when people have autoimmune conditions affecting their uh, thyroid, and in this case, Hashimoto's, uh, it depends on how long they've been affected by these symptoms. And some people's thyroids aren't working at all, even if they're not experiencing other symptoms that aren't there. So being a pharmacist and working a lot with people, what's your perspective on medications and Hashimoto's? Um, yeah, this is such a great question. And I know a lot of times when people um, get to be into the natural medicine, a, a lot of times people may hope that they may never need to be on medications. And I'm a big supporter of that as a pharmacist. I'm always looking for how do we take the fewest medications possible, right? Because a lot of medications are what I like to call dirty drugs, where they affect um, one part of the body, they suppress it or hyperstimulate it, and then we end up with all these side effects. And sometimes we create new diseases when trying to when trying to treat the original condition through the use of medications. Now, I want to say that thyroid thyroid medications. Um, are different because they're hormones. So they are naturally occurring chemicals that our body normally makes, right? And so they are, unless you're taking way too much of them or not enough of them, we're not likely to see the same kind of suppressions and hyperstimulations and all these, you know, potentially serious side effects. Um, what, what else is really important for people to know is that it's much easier to prevent damage to a thyroid gland than it is to grow back a new thyroid, right? I'm not saying it's never possible. And I do have some people that can reduce their dosage of medication, um, prevent the need for thyroid medication, or even completely eliminate their thyroid medications over time with some of the trigger eliminations and with, with supporting their body properly. But for most people, our reality is they need to be on some sort of thyroid hormone to really optimize their levels. Um, and this is going to be very, very important part of, of taking care of yourself and taking care of your body is making sure you're giving yourself every single tool that's out there to feel your best. Um, I'm a big believer in self-compassion and treating yourself well. And when you withhold things because of a dogma, you, and you end up hurting yourself, you know, that that's, that's really not a great way to treat your body that that really needs your love and support, right? Um, I know some people will say like, I am not against medications, I will not take any. And they suffer for years with, with low levels of thyroid hormone, and they try all these wonderful, natural things, but they keep suffering. And just taking a small dose of thyroid hormone can bring them back into level, um, give them the strength, the the energy to continue feeling their best and living their fullest lives. Um, and, and as a pharmacist, I will say that not all thyroid hormones are created equally. 
and we really need to work on optimizing them, sometimes using different types of thyroid hormones, um, whether that's that's synthetic, whether that's naturally desiccated thyroid, whether that's T3, T4. Um, these are compounded thyroid hormones. These are all things that we need to address and we need to take them uh, the right meds at the right time. So without any other things, no coffee, unfortunately, so we don't suppress our intake in the body. Um, and apart from other types of medications and supplements that can be impacting them and also at the right dose. I see a lot of people that are unfortunately underdosed. Their TS, they're on medications, but their TSH is a four. Their TSH should be somewhere between one and two for most people to feel their best. And some people even as low as 0.5. And then we see people that are overdosed on them and they end up having issues with, um, with osteoporosis, palpitation, anxiety, um, irritability. So these are all really important reasons why you need to find a practitioner that's familiar with all types of thyroid medications and thyroid hormones. A lot of times I'll get people, my readers will say, how do I find, how do I convince my doctor to give me, um, let's say, nature thyroid or another type of natural desiccated thyroid? Um, they don't want to do it. They just want to give me synthroid. And my answer is always like, you don't. You find a practitioner that knows how to use these different types of medications because you never want to be somebody's first patient on a medication that they don't know how to use, right? And you never want to convince somebody reluctantly. And there, you know, there are times where people feel like, look, I've been practicing medicine forever and who are you to tell tell me? And they may not be open to a suggestion. And then sometimes you find somebody who's so open-minded and maybe people live in areas where they only have access to certain types of doctors or they have to work within their insurance. And as long as your doctor is so incredibly open-minded and understands that different medications impact people differently and can dial in, but if you get resistance, it's time to move on. I, I absolutely agree with that. And um, what's, what's interesting is um, a lot of times what, what people don't really know about, but during all of the, there was a weight loss craze, um, back in the day, doctors would use in weight loss clinics, T3 thyroid hormone, um, for weight loss patients who didn't have thyroid disease and had normal thyroid function and they would induce hyperthyroidism. And that caused a lot of heart problems. And it was, you know, really serious situation, really serious side effects. And I think a lot of the doctors practicing now were familiar with, with that, and they were scared of using that type of medication. Um, one of the things I recommend for people is to work with a compounding pharmacist in their community and ask them which doctors in the community are um, familiar with utilizing the different types of thyroid hormones. And another thing that they can do if they have an open-minded doctor is to connect them with a pharmacist who can educate the doctor about appropriate um, usage of these thyroid hormones. Of course, it has to be a pharmacist that knows how to use them, which are, which are generally going to be found in the compounding pharmacy and not necessarily in your big box chain. Oh, that's great. That's a really great tip. In, in addition to medications, and I'm so glad that you shared that because, uh, you know, there's been a few big books that have been recently written on Hashimoto's and on the thyroid. And um, some of these books have a little bit of a different approach than the world of integrative and functional medicine. They feel that most thyroid conditions are, are, are not an autoimmune or that we have a different understanding of autoimmune and they feel like they're 
primarily related to viruses. And so as people take a little bit more of these natural approaches, uh, they might steer away from medication and suffer for years and years and years. I have a few friends and everybody has to make their own choices that are kind of going through this right now who are very committed to their approach. And um, I think somebody like yourself and hearing from somebody like you who's had you know, thousands of, of readers and listeners write in to you and tell you the impact that the program has made for them, uh, there shouldn't be this fear of, of medication. It's an important part of the healing process, especially in the case of, of Hashimoto's. You know, absolutely. And then I, I absolutely agree with addressing chronic infections as well and viruses. Um, Epstein-Barr virus and thyroid gland is, is just one of the potential viruses that can trigger Hashimoto's. There's a host ho whole host of other infections, um, H. pylori. We've had some complete remissions when people um, treated H. pylori. Blastocystis hominis is a protozoan parasite. We've had remissions of that. Lyme disease, there's, there's mold, um, um, candida, whole host of different infections can trigger the autoimmune response in the body. And we always want to find the root cause. We always want to address the root cause. Um, at the same time, you know, if your thyroid gland is damaged, it's not going to grow back overnight. You know, like if if the if your immune system has destroyed so much of it, we really want to make sure that you are properly supported from from every single angle. And infections are a big one, of course. They still treat them in in functional medicine. They're always looking for all the root causes. They're very tricky. And we're still learning so much about these different infections, co-infections, viruses that are out there. Um, do you talk about that in your books or are there uh, resources that you point people in the direction of to understand more about how these infections, like in your journey, you know, you had Epstein, Epstein-Barr, how they can navigate this world and combine it with... Um, uh, uh, yeah, who's a go-to resource for you in this uh, in this space? Um, I think there are a lot of fantastic functional medicine practitioners that work with infections. I have a whole chapter on infections in Hashimoto's protocol, so I do share how to test for them, what symptoms to screen for, as well as specific protocols that people can utilize. But I've had really great results with people um, being able to eliminate um, the different types of of pathogens, um, really, really, some really great people. Um, Dr. Dan Kalish um, specializes in, in, in infections. Um, Dr. Nick Hedberg also specializes in infections. Um, those are those are two holistic practitioners. But you know, it it kind of depends. Um, Darren Ingalls is great for for Lyme. So a lot of times you might have these specialist that will focus on a specific one. Um, Allison Seebecker is fantastic for SIBO. And my book would be a really great starting point for anybody that is um, has Hashimoto's to go through to figure out which infection they might have, what might be a trigger for them. And they, they can kind of um, utilize my protocols to cover probably 80%. But if they need to branch out um, specifically for Lyme disease, um, that might be a, a really good Thing to work up with a practitioner on, or somebody that's really specialized in that in that field, because that that can get a little bit more tricky than um, than let's say like an H. pylori or a blasto infection, which is generally going to be straightforward. And there are pretty simple 
um, you know, supplements that you can utilize for clearing those. Talk about supplements. What kind of supplements can be supportive in the process of uh, um, Hashimoto's and, and healing from the disease? Well, there are a lot of different supplements that I um, may recommend depending on the person's symptoms and depending on what what is going on with their body. Um, but there are also a few key ones that I may recommend for just about everybody with Hashimoto's. Um, and these are typically going to be focused on nutrient deficiency. So what I've seen is many people with Hashimoto's have a selenium deficiency. Um, I would estimate probably upwards of 90%. And so taking selenium methionine, 200 micrograms a day, has been found to reduce thyroid antibodies by about 50%. We also see lower rates of anxiety, lower rates of hair loss with this specific um, nutrient. With people, um, another common one is going to be uh, thiamine that's missing in people with thyroid disease. And I usually will recommend 600 milligrams of that per day to people, especially when they have fatigue and brain fog, we usually see those resolving within three to five days for people. Um, magnesium is also a very kind of broad spectrum common thing that can help. Um, most of us are gonna be magnesium deficient to begin with, and people with thyroid disease have been found to be deficient. Long-term use of magnesium, not, you know, I'm talking like years, has been found to normalize the appearance of the thyroid on a thyroid gland or on a thyroid ultrasound, so reduce some of that inflammation that we normally see. And this is something that can help improve sleep, anxiety. Um, for people that are constipated, I like to use magnesium citrate that helps to move their bowels a bit more. Um, what's amazing for a lot of the joint pains that people feel and for um, menstrual cramps especially, this can be helpful. Um, I've had some people eliminate migraines and headaches by just by adding magnesium into into the mix. Um, zinc is also going to be a common one that, that I find helpful. We see people can see uh, it improves the conversion of, of the T4 hormone, which is sort of the storage hormone of thyroid into the T3 more active hormone. Um, those are some of my go-tos. And then I also recommend that every person get tested for vitamin D B12, as well as ferritin, the iron storage protein, because most people with Hashimoto's are going to be deficient. Now, we don't want to just take those willy-nilly because um, ferritin specifically can be toxic or iron, iron can be toxic if we have too much and vitamin D um, potentially can build up in the body. And with, with the B12, we really want to get a good understanding of what's going on before and after we supplement because some people may have um, specific autoimmune responses and they may need specific versions of B12, such as a sublingual version or an injectable version to properly absorb it. When anybody comes on and talks about food and obviously you have this beautiful cookbook that, uh, that just came out, Hashimoto's Food Pharmacology, well, I think one of the things that our listeners love to hear about because it can sound like a lot and this all can be a lot for somebody, especially if they're just starting. I love to ask uh, the practitioners that we have on this podcast to talk a little bit about their, their, their daily life. Like what does your diet look like on a daily basis, especially having had uh, a child uh, recently, congratulations. And um, so walk us through, what do you eat on a daily basis and what are some of your favorite uh, recipes that uh, people might find uh, and let us know if we can find them in the new book. 
Yeah. Uh, so I know all about overwhelm. And when you're trying to change your diet, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't eat this. I can't eat that. I have to add more of this. I have to add more of that. And it can just feel so overwhelming, especially if you're not used to doing a lot of cooking or if you, you know, have a child or a job or, you know, any kind of life, right? Unless you're like a professional chef or nutritionist, it can be intimidating. And so um, I really wanted to create, make the cookbook to be very approachable. So 80% of the recipes are going to be super easy. You don't have to have like a chef's hat or a chef's knife. Um, you can use the slow cooker for them. You can, you know, I teach people how to do batch cooking and how to just really simplify and, you know, minimize all those all those like million steps, right? And um, really, I, I just try to keep it simple. So for breakfast, I'll generally have a green smoothie. And what I'll do is I'll add like a hypoallergenic protein source. I, I love hydrolyzed beef protein or pea protein, coconut milk as a source of good fat that stabilizes the blood sugar. And then I'll add some thyroid supportive foods such as blueberries, which are an excellent source of myo-inositol, which has been shown to normalize thyroid function, um, as well as some avocados to, again, support blood sugar, a um, few different types of veggies, and that's breakfast, right? And you can have that as a snack throughout the day. You just pop it in a blender, takes a few minutes to make, um, and you're done. And then then for lunch, I like to, I like to do just either cooked veggies with... Um, with some with some great tasty meats or salads and kind of have something similar for for dinner. I um I'm a big big fan of stews this time of year and in the cookbook you'll find a lot of different stews that are going to that are going to suit your needs uh, stews and soups. I try to utilize the the slow cooker or pressure cooker or just really simple techniques to make really delicious um satisfying soups. Some of the ones that you'll find, um, one of my favorites is barscht, which is Polish beet soup. So it's made with beets, which are an excellent source of um, betaine, which helps us digest our food and helps us detoxify and helps us, helps us methylate and clear out toxins from our body. Then I have um, Cuban-inspired soup, Cuban ropa vieja, which is another one that is rich in red meat. So it helps to provide some of that carnitine that's gonna support our energy levels. And then I have a Moroccan lamb stew that's gonna be nice and warming for, for people with thyroid disease. A lot of times they have cold intolerance and this stew uses some, um, some ginger and spices that are gonna to help to warm us up. And really these things can be made. You can just throw them in a slow cooker and um, they could be made while you're at Yeah, work. I love that. And actually, right before we were uh, starting off the podcast, you were talking about how cooking for somebody who might have Hashimoto's can be a little bit different. For example, and I would love to expand on this, that in your book, you, you kind of would minimize certain spices. Um, can you just extrapolate on that a little bit more? Absolutely. So a lot of times we might have reactions to nightshades and, um, as well as things like hot peppers or very like spicy piquant foods. Um, what we have found is that these can actually lead to intestinal permeability. And a lot of times people will have these reactions. So like jalapeno um, or, you know, hot sauce, they might find that it causes inflammation in their joints. So a lot of times they'll have pain throughout their body and that can be a trigger. Yeah. So a lot of the recipes we have are going to be autoimmune based, which eliminate those types of foods. And I actually 
avoid some of that even in my paleo protocols just because they can be so inflammatory for people. Now, that doesn't mean they can't have flavor, right? There's different types of spices we can make and we actually have specific spice blend recipes that you can, you know, you can make a year's worth in your kitchen for in five minutes with, you know, $15. Right. That I love that. And, you know, I don't have an autoimmune condition and I'm not suffering from anything right now, but I know even for myself, through just elimination diet, uh, testing, trying different things. I'm actually super sensitive to nightshades. So I primarily avoid eggplant, uh, you know, uh, bell peppers, tomato, I get flush for me, it primarily affects my skin. So I know firsthand that, um, you know, when you're looking for a cookbook that, uh, can give you tasty recipes, but minimize those things. It's uh, so key to, so key to find them. You know, we talk a lot about transitioning here for a second. We talk a lot about community on the podcast and more and more, I think in the space of just mental health, functional medicine, we're seeing that just community is so key to, um, to folks. And I know that for a lot of uh, first time moms, uh, new moms, you know, you have a baby and community can be a little bit, you know, uh, challenging, right? You, you've built this incredible community online and sometimes communities in person, sometimes it's online. How does community fit into your world and, and how, and do you have any tips for people that are looking to bring in more community into their world to support them on this process? Because as you said earlier, it can be super isolating as you start to make these uh, changes in your diet and lifestyle, you can feel like you're doing it all alone. Well, you know, I really, really love the internet for that because we can all be so connected these days. And I could sit in my, you know, I could sit in my pajamas and pull up a study that was done somewhere in Italy about which type of thyroid medications can be taken with coffee, right? And uh, learn from people that I've never met or will, might never come across just, just in, my, in my hometown. When I was first diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I was in my 20s and I lived in Los Angeles and none of my friends had it. None of my friends back home in Chicago had it. Nobody at work had it. And I felt so alone, right? And some, some of our clients had it, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily um, like a peer, right? And I didn't have a community to connect with. And I was like, I wonder if this would work. And I wonder if anybody's tried this or has anybody thought about this. And then I discovered um, a group called Hashimoto's 411 on Facebook. And this was a patient forum of people who were, who were asking the same questions that I was. And they were doing different types of experiments. And they were saying, hey, holy cow, I eliminated gluten and I felt better. Or, you know, this worked or this didn't work. And I ended up, you know, being kind of a fly on the wall in that community and learning a ton and just seeing other people's experiences. You can really, really learn so much from other people's experiences and you don't have to live through yourself um, just through Facebook groups or online forums. Or, um, you know, I have a Facebook page called um, Thyroid Lifestyle on Facebook. So if you search for Dr. Isabella Wentz, thyroid pharmacist, you'll be able to find me on there. And I share a lot of success stories and you can connect with some of the readers on my website. I have blog comments, there's Facebook groups, there's different online forums. And these are fantastic to connect to people. Like, you know, right now I'm in a lot of different mom groups. I was, I'm in all these, you know, breastfeeding groups and things. And I'm asking, is this normal when I'm breastfeeding? Right. Cause that's something new for me right now. Um, but a lot of times, 
you can find a lot of you could find so much support from from groups like this. The thing I will caution you about is there may be some groups or some group members that are not in a good place and they may have some negativity or they may have some drama and just to have really strong boundaries about that. And if you find a group that has a lot of drama, a lot of negativity, just, you know, go ahead and see your way out. Make sure that you find one that's more positive, more supportive. And, and as you go on this healing journey, as you, um, find things that work for you through some of these interests that you might have. Maybe you might take a gluten-free cooking class or you might you might sign up for a yoga class in your community. Um, you might find new friends that are going to be supportive and un- more understanding of your lifestyle than um, if perhaps your current friends are not supportive. All great advice. Isabella, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us all about Hashimoto's and giving us really the 411 and the 101 for people that aren't aware of this, but it's the fastest growing autoimmune disease out there. And many, many people, probably some people that are listening to this podcast could have it without even knowing. And it's good to know what tests are out there to figure out where can our listeners find out more about you and, uh, and find the new book, which I'm uh, so excited to dig into some of those recipes. So my website is thyroidpharmacist.com and they can find me there. Um, and I also have a um, Facebook page. So Dr. Isabella Wentz, thyroid pharmacist, you could find me on Facebook. And I have an Instagram page under Isabella Wentz, PharmD. If you like to see all kinds of baby pictures and what I eat on a regular basis and some selfies, right? Um, and really the book can be found anywhere books are sold. So Amazon, if you if you like Amazon Prime as much as I do, great place to get it. Um, Barnes and Noble is another place. And um, hopefully that it'll be helpful on your healing journey. Hashimoto's Food Pharmacology. Congratulations on the new book. And Isabella, thank you for the work that you're doing to really educate everyone out there about this. I really look up to what you and uh, Michael, your husband have built and the docuseries was an inspiration. And Michael was an advisor for us on our Broken Brain docuseries. And uh, Thank you for doing that. And thank you for supporting us with the the work that we put out there. Uh, It means the world. Thank you so much, Drew. And I want to thank you for making this cookbook and uh, nutrition guide happen because you were one of my advisors on the cookbook. I don't think a lot of listeners know about that. And I really appreciate your guidance. Yeah, well, you did well. You did well. Uh, Isabella, thank you and uh, wishing you all the best. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.